Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Black and Gay Back in the Day. We're bringing to life the archive of images of black LGBTQ plus life in Britain from the 1970s to the early noughties. I'm Mark Thompson. I'm an activist and health promotion specialist. And I built this archive with the journalist and writer Jason Okendaya. In this episode, we are looking at a photograph that was at the heart of a public health campaign for HIV awareness in the early 2000s. A colour photo shows two black men in a tight embrace looking into each other's eyes. Their noses are touching as though they are about to kiss. The man on the left is slightly taller than the man on the right. He is wearing a white shirt with an England football crest on the right sleeve. His arms are wrapped around the second man who is looking up at him and smiling, also wearing a white t-shirt. Underneath the image reads the caption, we're so much closer now, condoms are changing. For the last three decades, I have been advocating for healthcare equity particularly for HIV prevention for men who have sex with men and others who are at risk of exposure to the virus. But healthcare for our whole community is vast and often life-saving. I wanted to hear from someone who has experience in another area of the healthcare space. Trans activist and lover of all things queer and erotic, Aisha Palmer, who has been navigating the space for their own gender-affirming care for years. So I've just been sent this picture by Mark and it's two black men embracing each other. Kind of makes me feel really warm because like all I can think about is intimacy and the beauty of it. And this photo is part of condomsarechanging.com. So a campaign around HIV. I have to put my hands up and say that I, I don't know much more than what many people have seen on television in films which isn't always a true representation of the experience and it makes me think about trans healthcare and just trans people in general I feel as though people are so caught up with what they see on tv which isn't the true story uh, and it's distracting from the real issues that we should be tackling similar to the HIV epidemic and the lack of resources the lack of response um, due to what was being seen on TV. Thankfully, due to medical progression and advancement and just amazing people on the front lines, we're not where we used to be, but I know we're, we're definitely not where we want to be. In struggles like this, not everyone who planted the seed got to water it or see it harvest. But thankfully, we're able to speak to someone who's not only planted and watered, 
but is getting to see the harvest. And he's the host of this podcast, Mark Thompson, who's been doing this for decades. I'm really excited to speak to Mark. I've seen so much of his work and he's been in so many podcasts and um and articles where he where his passion and drive really comes across so strong for for what he's fighting for and encourages us to join that fight because there are so many parallels between trans rights that we're fighting for today and the fight for gay rights so long ago and and still happening as we speak. And I think in order to achieve that future of equity and liberation that we all talk about, everyone has to be on board. We have to build the bridges between generations and what better person to do it with than someone who has been such a trailblazer as Mark Thompson and someone who's aspiring to continue that fight as myself. And a conversation like this, a rich conversation like this, can't happen over Zoom. So I need to just book my ticket and hop down to London to get to meet him in person. Hi, Mark. Hey, Aisha. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Yeah, I'm nice. Do you usually switch? How does this feel? You know what? It's really weird because I'm usually like doing a lot of the interviewing, so I don't know where you're going to go with me today. (laughs) But You've got to trust. I I completely do. I'm back. I'm relaxed. I'm ready for you to take me there. We're looking at an image, Mm a very intimate image. How, what is your initial reaction? What's the first word that comes to you when you look at this picture? Intimacy and some very, very good memories. Yeah. (laughs) Some very good memories. Um, I mean, this is a really, this is a safer sex campaign from probably the early to mid 90s, produced by the Lesbian and Gay Foundation. And uh, the fact that it's got two black men, two dark skinned black men embracing in a really intimate, loving way is really special and was really quite unique and stood out at the time. It's groundbreaking. I think when I look at the image, the first thing that came to my mind was tongues untied. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can count on three fingers the amount of time I've seen such a beautiful, raw representation of black gay men. And that image is one of them. And if you look down, there's there's, there's some text. Yeah, so the text reads, we, we're so much closer now. Condoms are... Yeah, so, sorry, condoms are changing.com. Is that .com? My eyesight's going, but anyway. Buy um, my glasses. <laughs> middle-aged man, note to self, wear glasses when reading Instagram. But yeah, it, it, it really is not just about talking about safer sex. It's not explicit. I mean, it is talking about becoming closer, being intimate, being special. And I think you've got to put it in the context of the time that this was produced, the midway through the HIV epidemic, we're trying to put out lots of information, lots of resources that speak to our community, which was predominantly speaking to cis gay men at the time, around introducing and adapting safer sex practices into their lives. And I think what's really important, as well as the image, is the messaging around condoms, right? They're trying to normalise condom use in relationships because they were unusual. And I think that people look back and think, oh, well, you just used condoms because it was a smart thing to do. You're introducing something quite alien into lovemaking, which isn't there in normal circumstances. So this campaign and lots of other campaigns and messages had to kind of sex them up. There was a great phrase that was used at the time that, you know, safer sex is hot sex. 
I giggle when I hear that. <laughs> it is. It's very <laughs> true. And I think when I when I saw that text, I was like, I'm not sure, quite sure. Like, let me dig more into that. And you know, in London, I think there was a, um, a the prevention campaign, and there were some taglines like it was on it was in the heat of the moment, or it was just a one off. Mm. Um, and what was really great about these campaigns, unlike the beginning of the HIV epide- epidemic, was it was proactive. Mm. It was turning awareness into action. Mm. This is what you can do as an individual versus in the beginning, I feel like there was just so much, there was so much panic. What, what did that feel like? Well, you know, I think when the epidemic hit in say 82, 83, and then we start to get the first campaigns in 1987, the Don't Die of Ignorance campaign, gay communities had already started to do something about taking control. And that information wasn't as panicked, wasn't as scary. So if you look at it in the old campaigns that, for example, the Terence Higgins Trust did, they're kind of sex positive. And I think that what this image and some of the later work does is to take a much more sex positive line, accepting that HIV is here, it's not going away. We can't continue to scare people because that doesn't work. Scare tactics and fear do not work in campaigns or advertising, right? So... We move to a period where we're being much more inclusive, much more diverse. If you look at any of the old health education authority campaigns that came out around that time, particularly those targeting gay men, they moved away from the fear. And you see images of men holding hands, men in the bed together, pictures of condoms, and it becomes a much nicer journey. But, and there's always a but with these things, you start to get a bit of a pushback against that from some of the gay community at the time because it becomes quite vanilla. And so these aren't sexy campaigns. In some ways, they're quite sexless, you know. And I remember there's one campaign I remember really vividly where it's just a pair of hands with condoms on them. I mean, okay, what am I going to do with that, (laughs) right? And what we started to do in our activist community was to start to reclaim some of that work and some of the work that Gay Men Fighting AIDS did and then I subsequently did a big up was to be much more hard hitting, much sexier, to be a little bit more explicit. We didn't want to take away from intimacy, but we knew that the men that we were working with weren't necessarily engaging in loving long term. Let's cook breakfast on a Sunday morning. They were going out on a Saturday night. They were shagging and they weren't seeing that person the following day. So how do you promote safer sex to those people? And and that that is a really good question. How was that possible? I think in the time where, you know, the party scene, that was the life. I mean, it is still the life for myself. Mm. I don't want to speak about you, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, going out, that's where we find our community. That's where we find so many of us, our chosen family. We find them within those four walls, sweaty strangers, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking, you know, telling your, your life story to someone in the bathroom or falling in love on the dance floor. When is the point that you introduce that? talk about safe sex is it before the kiss is it after the kiss is it when you're dancing on the dance floor like how is that being introduced how has that been introduced well what we did as campaigners and activists and people who were affected by hiv at the time was we were from the community so the community started to drive the conversation the community started to decide actually i go to the clubs i go to the saunas I go out outdoors to Hampstead Heath and I meet people. This is how you should talk to me. So it wasn't from on high that was coming down and creating the work. It was a bottom-up approach. So when I got involved in the work, I was working with other black men my age. We weren't academics. We weren't doctors, nurses. We were just like, something needs to be done. So one of the first things that you would do is to make sure the work you're delivering is culturally appropriate. 
Okay, so it speaks in a language, it uses imagery that relates to the people that you're trying to reach. That's number one. Number two, if you're thinking about the dance floor and the clubs, then you go into those spaces, right? So what I would do is I would organise teams of volunteers, young black gay men, who would pack condom packs and they would take them to parties, to clubs. Sometimes you get a really bad reaction from people, but overall, people were really welcoming because they knew, right, I've hooked up, somebody just handed me a condom pack, I can go home and I can use this and I will probably prevent myself getting HIV. But what we also did was to work with club promoters, with DJs, with people that were running the parties, running the bars to say, you are part of the community, you have a responsibility and people jumped in on that and that was really important. HIV is no longer a death sentence. We've seen a move from panic to prevention, care and treatment options. And this has no doubt been down to the community action, which has led to results. And that's individuals, that's grassroots mobilization for demanding better services, demanding services, period, because there were no services at one point, um, you know, medication and education. And I wanted to know on a personal level, how how did you get involved well, I got involved kind of by accident. You know, I mean, I, I was diagnosed myself at a really young age at 17 and had no intention of becoming an activist or doing any of this work. And I kind of fell into it because I was invited to by other black gay men. You know, I was first of all asked to give a talk to a group of volunteers at a service centre I went to. I really enjoyed doing that because it was an audience. And um, then I was asked to come and give safer, safer sex talks to black gay men. So I would do these little workshops and it would literally be 12 men in a community centre. And I would have a packet of condoms, bananas to put the condoms on and games where you would like um, measure your risk of a certain act and put yourself in the line to see where you are on the risk continuum. And all of these things I would really enjoy doing. And... On one level, it was really personal because I was positive and I'd experienced HIV stigma directly. I didn't want other men like me or me to continue facing that. So I thought if I can teach somebody, that will make life a lot easier for me. It'll make life a lot easier for everybody else. And my career just snowballed and I slowly just got invited to do more things. I set up an organization with a group of guys called Big Up and it just went and went from there. But what I really enjoyed was in spite of the fact that it was a really dark time outside, that in that space, it was joyous. I mean, the fact that we would get together 20, 30 men for a workshop, and yes, they'd be talking about HIV, they'd be talking about AIDS and how to prevent it, but we were building community. There was a lot of love. These were people who were connecting in the daytime. And I think that's the thing we have to remember, that all of our connections were in clubs. We were now moving to a space where we were volunteering, we were marching, we were staffing helplines, we were running groups, all of these things came out of that pandemic. And I think it's really important that we remember that so many things that we enjoy today came as a result of that time. process with all of that you've just said except you are just a wealth of knowledge <laughs> and, it, and it shows the, the power of, of lived experience mm. right and I, I, as you were speaking I was thinking you know what we go through 
doesn't have to be just for us, right? We can then after I mean, you're still going through, mm. but take that 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 experience that you had and the things that you've learned and sharing that with other people. Um, and I think it's quite difficult. It must have been quite difficult for someone having that experience. Someone on the outside come in and saying, "This is what you need to do," having no connection to community, having no idea what it's actually like. But when someone who is having the same experience as you sharing being vulnerable, being open and, and, and helping and sharing that knowledge. It's just, you're so much more receptive of that. And, and you know, I can I can only uh, imagine the power that you found in that. It must have been very difficult and I'm sure at times still difficult, but you tapping into your personal experience and finding the purpose mm. within all that chaos, all that misinformation, all the lies that, you know, might have been shared outside and, and tapping into that purpose within yourself and sharing that, I think it's just so wonderful. Um, coming from a very religious family, I was born in 1994. I, I consider myself a bit older now. Mean people were like, I was born in 2002. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, you know, raised a bit in Florida, but, you know, a majority of my young adult life in the Caribbean. Uh, my only knowledge of HIV or AIDS was an abomination. That's what you get for being gay. That mm -hmm. was that was the only knowledge that I had. Um, and I, I saw firsthand how it wasn't necessarily, yes, yes, HIV, yes, the pandemic killed, but it was, I think, stigma. I, I believe that it was stigma that created these barriers and, and, you know, reinforced the barriers for people to even access or have a conversation um, to, to access healthcare. And I kind of, I wanted to ask, to stick on that point just for a little bit, what advice would you would you give to uh, a young black male who was just who's just got his results? What advice would you give to him? Because I, I I can imagine I think of the five stages of grief, right? Denial, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> and then there's anger, mm -hmm. and then but you know to get to that, how do you in that very moment? How do you see that acceptance at the end? How do you see that light in the tunnel? You you you're not going to see it for a while for some people, right? And I think that one of the one of the pieces of advice I say to anybody is you will see that light eventually, right? It, it's going to come, right? And I've worked with lots of newly diagnosed people in my, in my career. And what I've often said to them is you go through life, all of us do, and you're going down a road, and we always get speed bumps, right? HIV is a speed bump in the middle of the road. Now, if you're driving your car, you have two choices when you go over a speed bump. You can speed over it and you'll mess up the under the exhaust and the underneath of your car and all the rest of it. If you take your time and you approach it slowly and you look around and you measurely go over it, you'll come over the other side. And HIV is just one speed bump in your road of life. So it's what you do when you get to that speed bump. Now, in our direct answer to your question, if I had a young black queer man sitting in front of me today, my first bit of advice is you're not alone. It's so important to know that you are now part of a massive community. There are 100,000 of us in this country alone. So you're not on your own. And many people feel really isolated. You're not going to die. <laughs> That's the other important thing to understand. And you will be loved. All the medical stuff you can control, you can manage that. But that psychological stuff, you will be loved, you will live, and you're not on your own. Take that to heart. That's for everybody. Yeah. We've seen incredible medical advances in our treatment of HIV since the 1980s. Um, you're wearing a wonderful shirt here. Um, and one of the texts is celebrating women who pushed for PrEP in the UK. Can you tell us 
I'll be honest, put my hands up. I I don't know any of the names on the T-shirt. Can you please just talk a bit? (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to unpick. There's a lot to unpick. So I'll talk about the T-shirt first, right? So the T-shirt was made by my company, Prepster, that we run to educate and agitate for prep access in the UK. And this T-shirt specifically was produced for International Women's Day, and it has on it uh, Gold, Ross, Susuma, and Strachan. And now these are four women who were instrumental in the fight for prep access in the UK. And that's uh, Debbie Gold, Michelle Ross, Winnie Susuma, and Sophie Strachan. And the reason we did that, we, we celebrated, I think it was 12 women in total, clinicians, researchers, and activists, because the narrative is very often being it's white gay men or it's gay men that have fought for PrEP. And there are so many women that have been proactive in the entire fight for HIV rights and access and prevention since the start of the epidemic, right? There's been equal number of women as it has been men. And I think it's really important to celebrate that. And PrEP is a drug that can prevent HIV. It's available in the NHS. It works and more people should know about it. And when I consider how far we have come, so when I was diagnosed, there was no treatment at all. Then we get something called AZT in the 1980s. Then the late 90s, we have combination therapy, which is when you take a number of HIV drugs combined and it reduces the virus in your body. And now we've got to a point where we know, because of lots of studies and lots of work have been done with positive people, If you're HIV positive and you take your treatment as prescribed, you get to an undetectable viral load, which means you can't pass the virus on. Now, I never imagined that. And that is huge. One, it's huge for for the world (laughs) because we're not passing HIV on and we can end the epidemic. But for me, as a positive person, it's life-changing for us as people who live with HIV because it stops us internalizing that we are infectious. We are vectors and carriers of disease which is the most internalized, stigmatizing thing that we carry with us. Yeah, I, I believe you equals you. That, That's the that one. It, it's, it's a really important strategy because, like you said, it minimizes stigma, but it also, it, it was the first time that, that people re- had realized it was possible to have, to develop quote unquote normal sexual relations with others mm-hmm. because in the beginning that that wasn't even that wasn't even a thought mm-hmm. it was you know when, when you got your results it was like I, I'm, I'm going to die essentially mm-hmm. there was no thought about intimacy and, and the power of being in a relationship that wasn't even something that it was so far-fetched and here we are today where people can have those normal sexual relations with, with others and just how important how important is 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 that? How important is it to know that your life, you still can have life. Like there's a possibility for a full, healthy, loving, happy, happy life. Well, remember I said that you know there are many people that I've worked with who say to me once they get a diagnosis, I'm not going to be loved. I say immediate thing. Nobody's ever going to love me again. With this piece of science, with this, you know indisputable fact that people can't pass each other it opens the doors to be loved it opens the doors for intimacy in ways that people had probably put to bed had forgotten about didn't think were possible in their lifetimes but there is always a caveat with this that hiv is a global pandemic it's not just based in the uk and it's great that if you're diagnosed here you can go to a clinic and you can get treatment tomorrow morning boom nice and easy but we know that globally that's not the same over 50 percent of people in the world infected with HIV are women and girls. Access to treatment globally is not equitable. 
So I can sit here and go, it's amazing. But I know that somewhere somebody is not able to access HIV treatment as easily as I am. And the only way we end this pandemic is to have a global response. So we need to ensure that healthcare is equitable for everybody. Even in the UK, we still know stories of black women in particular going into clinics, not being offered HIV tests, or not adhering to treatment or being lost to follow-up. And this isn't because these black women aren't doing the right thing, it's because the system isn't in the right position to meet their needs. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I know there's a lot of acronyms and words people might understand. Can you just summarize all of, of that wonderful knowledge you just said to someone who may have no clue what all that right. means. Okay, let's start then. Let's start with PrEP. So PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it means it's a drug that you take before. That's the pre. And what it is, it's HIV medication. So it's HIV drugs that HIV positive people take, but negative people take them before and after sex to prevent them from getting HIV. That's PrEP. Then you have PEP, which is P-E-P, which is post-exposure prophylaxis, which means it's a drug you take after sex. Now, you can take PEP and you can get it from most accident emergency clinics, um, just going in, if you feel you've been exposed to HIV, and you take the drug within 72 hours of that exposure, and you take it for up to four weeks afterwards, and it can stop you acquiring HIV, right? So it's HIV medication, like PrEP, but taken after, right? And it's one pill. And then we have U equals U, which is undetectable equals untransmittable. And what that means is when a person who is diagnosed with HIV takes their HIV medication as prescribed, which is every day, they then get an undetectable viral load, which means that doctors, healthcare professionals cannot measure the amount of virus in your blood which therefore means you can't pass HIV on. And there have been loads of studies done, lots of positive people having lots and lots and lots of sex, and there have been no transmissions around the world. And that is great news. The power of medicine. Ta-da! <laughs> I don't think any of that uh, would have been possible had had the the stigma and misinformation continue to be prevalent. And again, that's down to work as individuals, mm-hmm. to, to women, to to mass mobilization, to through grassroots movements, demanding demanding we we have a fighting chance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we know, Mark, that this largely impacted marginalized communities such as black and brown, queer, poor, and all of the above. Mm-hmm. I do think 
like HIV is a lens through which you can see all the ways in which this intersects. How do you get other people to see that? That's a really great question. You know, I think, how do we get people to see it? I think what, if I can reflect back, what I started to do was when I first realised and saw the data, particularly in the United States, that black gay men were twice as likely to get HIV as white gay men. And when I started to understand the epidemiology and the research behind it, and I understood, well, actually, it's not anything we're doing. Black gay men are not having more sex. They're not, they're probably starting sex, having less sexual partners. They're doing less drugs. And it was this magic bullet that just went into my head. This is about so, sexual and social networks. This is about the fact that men don't feel they can access clinical services. They weren't accessing HIV testing. They were coming to treatment really late and all of these things. And I kind of knew and looked around the black men that I knew. And I was like, well, they're not idiots. <laughs> you know, they aren't unskilled. Why are they not? getting the same things that my white friends are. And I started to look at the social and structural barriers that were impacting on those men. So then that gave me leverage when I had a seat at the table with politicians, with funders, to start actually going, this isn't what we're doing. This is what you're not doing. And that was the spin on its head. And then now I can look and I can see that those people in those positions of power and I have to say this, particularly in the sexual health field, not wider government, now look at the needs and the lives of black queer men and go, ah, right, it's not just because we need, they need to do X, we need to do better. It's not about these people are hard to reach, we're just not looking in the right places for them, right? So I think that's important. And as we've gone on, we're able to add things like systemic and institutionalised racism, which impact. We're able to look at how homophobia impacts black queer communities and brown queer communities in different ways to white communities so all of these factors we have the evidence which we already knew but we have evidence to show to people and i think finally what covid did in the past couple of years because that lens was broadened out and we saw black and brown communities hugely affected by covid and the health inequalities the light was shone very brightly we were able to come back and go this isn't just about covid this is everywhere across health and something came to my mind when you were just speaking, you know, the, the weathering effect, right? Mm. So we, we know that just dealing with everyday impact of oppression such as racism, as homophobia, transphobia, sexism, w working class, it has a physiological toll. And you said you speak of research and it, it's proven that it ends up manifesting itself when it body and places people that places people at an increased risk. Or when you're dealing with racism or you're dealing with all these oppressions, you don't have the time or the mental capacity to even think about going to access, having a conversation, who do I need to speak to? That that time isn't afforded to you because all your time is, is, is caught up in fighting the systemic racism. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And frankly, we are tired. Everyone mm -hmm. is tired. So I want to know where can black queer people access this information and services? I mean... Unfortunately, I wish I could reel off a list of places for you to go to, for us to go to, but there aren't, you know, and I, and I, and I don't want to leave people out, but I think off the top of my head, there are places like, you know, Black Beetle Health, um, Rainbow Noir up in Manchester, you know, you have House of Rainbow run by Reverend Jude McCauley. 
These are some of the places, the NAS Project in London that works with South Asian communities and Latino communities, and some of our smaller organisations, which are a bit more generic, like, say, Positive East in London or the Metro Centre, they do great work with marginalised communities. But in terms of naming places, there are very few and far between. And I think that's because we've had austerity in the past 10, 12 years, so lots of services have been cut. Um, we haven't been as good as recreating some of those spaces. But I think the place where most people would go right now is online, is to go to your local Insta. Your local Insta. <laughs> Old person. Um, <laughs> keep that in. But it's to go to, it's to, go to Instagram, it's to go to Twitter and to find people who are influencers, people that are making a difference, people that are promoting good, healthy messaging and to make those connections. I'm a great believer in us getting out and recreating community and building up some of those services that we so sorely lack and we so that are sorely missing from our communities. And speaking of social media, that's something that wasn't around then, but it is now. And we see how it's been a vital tool during the, you know, monkeypox, the, you know, the virus outbreak that's that's happening right now. Um, we can see people sharing stories of of them, of them in suffering, you know, sharing stories of pictures and videos. And we have people like Dr. Colton Thomas, who's a queer educator on social media. And again, compared to back then to now, here are people in the field who's counteracting misinformation Mm -hmm. by giving correct information and you know lived experience and really that voice the power the power of messaging is no longer just in the government it's with the people here on on the on the front line with the lived experience Mm. i mean it's being democratized right which which is fantastic and I, i think monkeypox right now um, is a great example of communities and individuals in the community taking charge of the narrative, putting out their own stories, challenging misinformation, challenging stigma, challenging stuff within their friendship, social groups, their sexual networks, which is really important. Again, I always caveat these things, usually a but with me, but we have to ensure that government does have a responsibility to its citizens, to the nation. Queer people, we have a right to good health care and good information. Now, whilst I'm really happy that a young queer man might tomorrow put out a great piece of information, as you said about weathering, that's taken away from him taking care of himself. How is he being supported? So if he's in isolation, who's paying for that isolation time when he's there? If he goes to a clinic and he's met with some stigma there or some homophobia there because he's had lots of sexual partners and he's got monkeypox, who's supporting him there? So yes, it's great that the individual does that, but we also need to have a big system approach to this. It cannot just solely rely on a group of us getting up and going, this is what's happening, we deserve better. Because everybody's in it. We all pay our taxes. We all are citizens in this country. We all play an active role. So we should be getting something back from government, from the powers that be, from sexual health services. And that is something that hasn't changed since the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. that rings so loudly like yes we deserve better but now we need to shift the pressure on so you need to do better and Mm. it needs to happen now yeah what i find interesting when i'm observing the stuff around monkeypox and how it relates back to the the hiv epidemic is i see it mirroring around trans and non-binary health as well the same struggles the same lack of you know response from government or pushback from government and those that sit around it And I'm inspired by 
young trans and non-binary activists who are taking control of that narrative and demanding. But you work in that field. What has it been like? What are you seeing? Well, like you said, it the similarities are just so so there. It's so it's so in your face. You anyone who says they can't see it, it's not they can't. They choose not to. Mm. Um, transgender people suffer significant health disparities and you know some may require medical intervention as part of their care that's not everyone's experience but that that is some that is some people's experience and the biggest barrier to healthcare again similar to what we speak about before is the lack of access due to lack of providers who have any knowledge on the topic and they quite frankly from my personal experience they don't feel as though they should have knowledge about the topic. I remember when I first accessed NHS, um, I'm going to have top surgery in a couple of weeks, woohoo. But it's been extremely exhausting mm. and long and hard. And there's been so many points where I was just like, is this is all a waiting game? Is this what my life is meant to be? Just just waiting for a letter, waiting for a phone call, waiting for a response, waiting for someone to to hear my needs, not desires, what my needs are. I realize it's not even a question about us having a voice. It's a question about are they listening? Do they care enough to listen? And what we've seen when it comes to trans healthcare, it doesn't seem like those in positions of power care enough to listen. And that's something that's mirrored from the 80s. It's the same, mom always said, same message, different choir. You see, the question I've got on the back of that, because we've both spoken a lot about outside forces, the government, and you just said something there which I just picked up on, which was it's not a want, it's a need. When we reflect back on the HIV epidemic, I felt the community came together, you know, men, women, everybody just got in because we were facing death, right? Do you find that you have community coming to support and to demand and fight for trans and non-binary healthcare in the same way that the wide community? Is it just trans and non-binary people fighting for this? Do you need the cis community to be on board? Because sometimes I'm seeing that pushback from our siblings we need allies right and, and allies not just a term to put into your instagram bio mm-hmm. but it's an action right the reason we need that it's just the same reason that in 80s needed it we need that collective response it cannot just be on those being affected by the thing to be fighting for the thing because it's it, it's so hard it's so hard to juggle and you know i think about my day-to-day when you're a part of the solution, right, a part of that fight, but you're experiencing that, it takes extremely a, a very heavy toll. It, it's like, what am I choosing today? I'm going to have to compartmentalize, right? Mm. I had to compartmentalize my experience and focus on the work that needs to be done. Yes, we need allies. Cis people, step up to the plate. And, you know, and just stepping away from, from labels. Human to human, right? Human to human. Do you want to be the recipient of a system that is reliant on the oppression of other people? I don't. Within the community, no one goes harder, right? We go hard for our own. We protect our own. We stand up for our own. Like thinking of my choosing to go down the private route for my top surgery. After two years of waiting, I was like, okay, I I can't wait. I've waited. I think I've waited long enough. I think I've given enough time to this. And I do think GoFundMe changed changed it was a shift so go for me started in 2010 right but i think it was 2019 started seeing those hashtags of people 
putting up their Go, creating GoFundMe for their surgeries. And the response was amazing. People gave. Mm-hmm. People were willing to give. People were like, okay, even if it's a pound, a penny, sorry, you know, for I'm gonna mix up the I'm gonna mix up the currency now. But <laughs> sometimes it's not even the question of do people want to? I feel like people struggle. They don't know how to feel. They're like, can I give to something that I'm not completely clear about? Can I give to a, a cause that I don't understand? And what GoFundMe did is, you can be anonymous and just give five pounds. No one needs to know what you've done. No one, The right hand doesn't need to know what the left hand did. And that created this kind of like safety net for people. And they felt like, okay, I, I, can, I can do this. You know, I started my GoFundMe during the pandemic, which was really, really frightening. I created a draft about like a year before and it took me an entire year to put to press posts. I was just like, you know, everyone, you know, the financial crisis, everyone has an issue, everyone has a problem. Like all, all these other, all of these things I had to think about and, you know, thinking for other people. And I had to come to a point where like, hold on a second, how I can I continue to forfeit, Right. What is my right? And I think that's what it it has to come down to knowing as a trans person, as a non-binary person, it is your right to healthcare. Every other person's needs are met. I don't understand why it's just like it gets all complicated and and the waters get murky. No, you need something, you should be provided that service. We all have a part to play in the liberation, the true liberation of trans, non-binary, queer people. Wow. I mean, that was a lot. And I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. But you asked me earlier, you know, what advice would I give to a young black queer man who might be diagnosed positive today? So what advice would you give to a a young trans or non-binary person who is today realising, I'm not cis, I want more? Well, you can have more. (laughs) One. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) One. Two. It took such a long time for me to come to terms with my truth and choose to live that. Mm-hmm. You don't choose to be trans. You don't choose to be non-binary. You don't choose to be gay. You don't choose to be bi. You don't choose those things. But what you do choose is to live in that truth. And that I completely agree with. Brown skin beauty Fair fine future I've been your host, Mark Thompson. The reporter in this episode was Aisha Palmer. You can find the picture we've discussed in today's episode and all the images talked about throughout this podcast on Instagram at Black and Gay Back in the Day. And drop us a message if you have something you want to submit to the archive. A link will be available in the show notes. Coming up next week on Black and Gay Back in the Day... Oh, what was your coach's name? <laughs> My coach's name was James Island. <laughs> James Island. Oh, I kind of like it. It's got like a little bit of flair to it. It does sound a little bit like a pirate, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had coded name. Black and Gay Back in the Day is an Aunt Nell production based on the archive created by myself and Jason Okendeo. It is produced by Shivani Dave and Tash Walker, and the assistant producer is Abby McIntosh. Mixing was by Adam Smith, and the music was composed and performed by Amaru. Artwork was by Kemi Oliede. The executive producers were myself and the Art Nail team. Thanks to Content is Queen, The Glass House, The Audio Content Fund, Gadio, 
the Bishopsgate Institute and all of our contributors. A special thank you to all of those past and present who have fought for Black Liberation. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.